It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And uh, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. I'm your host, David Moses, and it is a pleasure to have with us on the show uh, Mr. Wayne Garnons-Williams. And he is a senior lawyer and principal director at Garwell Law Law Professional Corporation uh, in the Ottawa area. They offer litigation, ADR, and corporate commercial services with a particular interest in Indigenous law, custom excise, and international trade law. And Wayne was also born on the Musiman First Nation, and that's in Treaty 6 in Saskatchewan. And he's also one of the 10 permanent board members on the 60s Scoop Healing Foundation, which is what we're going to be talking to him about today. Wayne, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we get into the the Healing Foundation and, and the 60s Scoop uh, Healing Foundation that we're going to be talking to you about, I wanted to ask you, you know, in, in part of the description of yourself, it says that you enjoy resolving challenging civil litigation and corporate commercial law problems. Yes. What, what draws you to that? What, what, when it says you enjoy resolving these things, why? Well, there's an area of the law that I specialize on and specialize in, um, and that is it's a mixture of corporate, corporate law, indigenous law, trade law. And that's a, a growing area right now. And that is where you've got a mix of domestic laws from, say, Canada, the United States, New Zealand, Australia, domestic laws with respect to trade. And international laws with respect to trade. Now, that's pretty settled. But what isn't settled here, which is really exciting, is the idea of domestic indigenous law, which is basically derived from the federal perspective of what is indigenous law or, or uh, the, the, the formal Indian law. But then you've got the indigenous generated legal principles on top of that within each tribal nation. The, the the customs, the the, the processes, the, the, the ancient tribal laws. And on top of that, there is the whole concept that early on, pre-European contact, um, I have a book coming out, pre-European contact, a, a law textbook dealing with this. In pre-European contact, there was various routes of intertribal trade stretching Everywhere across North America, using the major waterway, waterways, the, the Ohio, uh, the Missouri, mm. the, the Mississippi, all going south into mm. the, uh, Bay, uh, Gulf of Mexico, the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes going east into the Atlantic, the Columbia and the, uh, the, the Fraser going west into the Pacific. All of these trade routes were used amongst tribes everywhere. So there was goods going back and forth pre-European contact. And then once the Europeans came, they used this this trading system to get fur, which is the, the main product. They wanted fur, uh, the fur trade, but as well that the indigenous people wanted in uh, Western uh, goods, the, the 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 metals, the irons, the the the, the products that 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 came from from Europe. So there was this massive trade influx, which changed the trade routes. And then, of course, the Canada-U.S. border was established, and that came to a grinding halt. So it's mm. now the fact that my organization, the International Intertribal Trade and Investment Organization, has been building this to develop an international trade uh, policy. 
government of Canada is the first one of the first ones with New Zealand to come up with an indigenous and international indigenous trade policy and an indigenous trade uh, uh, agenda, which has been incorporated into international trade agreements. So now we're going to have in the next iteration of trade agreements, we're going to have an indigenous trade clause, which allows for intertribal trade amongst other things. And that's exciting. And that's a whole new area of the law. So when you say challenging stuff, that's the kind of challenging stuff I love. <laughs> I see what you're saying. That it, it is very fascinating, especially when you tie in the history element there. But, but as you look to the future, what is it that you hope this will bring for Indigenous people internationally, I guess, uh, for trade purposes, but, but also uh, just in general, what do you see the possibilities are for this? Well, there, there is a recognized inherent economic right of intertribal trade in Canada, recognized, well, in, in, embedded in Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, uh, where Indigenous rights are hereby recognized and affirmed. So in that, there's a whole bunch of things that uh, haven't yet been uh, uh, what you call it, um, conf- uh, confirmed, mm. but they're out there. There, there are mm. rights that are out there, and that's the cool thing about when when Justice when Madam Justice, Madam Justice, sorry, Justice Minister Jody Wilson Raybould was the Minister of Justice. She she said, you know, this is like a a box, a black box, the Section Thirty Five rights, where we don't know what's in there, but we know it's in there, <laughs> and what we need, the Indigenous people know what's in there, but the government federal government doesn't recognize it. And the way to get it, unfortunately, is antiquated where the federal government, and I've been a federal government lawyer for 10 years, Mm. and the federal government would say, okay, indigenous people, you have a right, prove it. And Mm. we don't believe you until you've exhausted all your appeals in the Supreme Court of Canada, and then the Supreme Court is forcing us to acknowledge your right. Only then will we acknowledge your right. Mm. That's the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Jody Wilson-Raybould broke the mold as a justice minister and said, no, we've got to, we've got to make an effort because we have a fiduciary obligation to indigenous peoples to really take a good hard look at what are those possible indigenous rights, including economic rights, that are locked into Section 35 of the Constitution 1982 that need to be teased out so that we can start the process of healing, reconciliation, prosperity for Indigenous peoples across Canada. So the whole concept of intertribal trade is one of those things that goes back to the idea of Indigenous sovereignty within the, 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 the Canadian fabric, then that's not, that's not nothing, that, that's, that, that's nothing new. Uh, in, in, in Quebec, for example, there, there have been notions of sovereignty association or, or living within the federalist, uh, the federalist perspective, but having a form of, of sovereignty. In the United States, the, 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 the U.S. tribes back in 1830 in the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice uh, Marshall determined back in 1830 that the tribes have a form of sovereignty clear sovereignty in relationship to state incursion upon their lands, their jurisdictions, and their governance bodies. And this was only reinforced just recently in 2020 by the McGirt case of the United States Supreme Court. Mm. So it's Canada has a long way to go in mm. recognizing inherent Indigenous rights. And we can take a cup of knowledge from the world, like the United States and other New Zealand, and start building prosperity for Indigenous peoples um, through giving them the the tools to help themselves. Like, for example, an Indigenous trade chapter that gives Indigenous uh, First Nation corporations or First Nation businesses the opportunity to trade with other First Nation businesses and thereby generate wealth, thereby generate job growth, thereby generate prosperity in Indigenous uh, jurisdictions. Mm. 
That sounds all very fascinating. I think we're going to have to have you back on to discuss this further because <laughs> I think it's another topic we can definitely get into and and uh, and you are definitely showing that you are passionate about it. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I, it's something it's uh it, it's it's a passion of mine. You're right. But listen, the other thing that of course we're here to talk about is uh, you being one of the permanent board members of the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation, which I understand is is what about a year old now. Yes, it's about a year old. There's been an interim board up until, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, the interim board has done an amazing job for the first year of, uh, of being underway. Their mission was, of course, to, to try and provide some sort of legacy document for the permanent board that gives us a, a direction, gives us a compass. And the way they did that is they went out for about six months of their mandate and they met with as many survivors and survivor groups across Canada as possible. Uh, from September to February, they, they engaged in a series of uh, uh, 10 uh, in-person engagement sessions, as well as online uh, engagement uh, sessions as well. The in-person, there was a total of 525 people that engaged, but online, there was over a 1,000. And, and, of course, we had to go online because, of, of course, of the, the, the pandemic that happened. So mm-hmm. we had to change our, change our game plan. But the result, of course, was this wonderful legacy document, which is called the 60s Scoop Healing Foundation National Survivors Engagement Report. Mm-hmm. And this is cool because... It's it's a, a gift from the interim board to the permanent board, but it's more than just that. It's the words and the direction and the ideas mm. and the aspirations and the dreams of all the survivors that have contributed in this in, in this engagement over the last six months by the uh, interim board. So this is our compass. And this is awesome for us. So we're not starting from the from the from ground zero. We've got uh, a legacy document to give us an idea as to what our uh, constituent survivors see as the most important stuff. And what we found is to be the most important stuff that what 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 the what the constituents have found to be the most important stuff. Uh, there's about seven or eight of them. There's cultural reclamation, uh, i.e., re- regaining the the, the the culture that was taken from us. Uh, mental health, because of course there's an awful lot of people that have gone through um, the, 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 the fact of being stolen from their parents and gone from foster home to foster home or mm-hmm. gone to an abusive family and they need help. Uh, there's also reunification, uh, which is basically, of course, uh, getting meeting the, the, the lost families and the stolen children, bringing them back together again. Uh, also advocacy, uh, making sure that the issues are, um, making sure basically that history does not repeat itself mm-hmm. and that this can, uh, we can find commonalities among other organizations of like mind, like the, uh, residential schools group, which, which could, uh, we, we could, we, there's a lot of alliances there that could mm. be fleshed out. Also education. Um, uh, the, the, uh, I just referenced the six, the the, the, um, the, um, uh, the residential schools. They've mm. done an awful. The, that group has done an awful lot of great work mm. getting education into the school systems about the fact that this is a period of time that ha- this happened in Canada. Mm. This uh, the 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 60s scoop also happened in Canada, and that could equally be part of the education that's already brought in about the, the residential schools as, as basically an addendum to that process, which is really exciting as well. 
uh, commemoration, the fact that, uh, the, that there are certain key points that need to be to be not forgotten and uh, not to be glib, but but celebrated in a way that remembers key incidents that happened and to remember the, the people that that maybe uh, uh, that, that didn't survive this process mm. that have, have, have gone on. Uh, as well, there's also the community and connection building, which is basically almost like diplomatic relations. Uh, having starting that dialogue, providing a resource for First Nations uh, that want to learn about how they can provide services or products to reconnect with their with their uh, stolen members. So all those are really cool, and uh, I think I think this is this is a good start with this with this uh, national survivor engagement report, and we can we can really move on getting some some really core stuff out there as quickly as possible. Now, of course, uh, as I mentioned off the top, you're one of the the ten permanent uh, board members, but you are are also a '60s scoop survivor yourself. And indeed, uh, the the again the interim boards when they were looking at how to put together a permanent board they wanted to make sure that as many survivors got onto the board as possible and we're happy to say that of the 10 uh, uh, permanent board members of the national 60 scoop uh, healing foundation nine of ten are are survivors of the 60 scoop the tenth one is um, um, uh, justice harry laform um, mm. which we're honored to have him and his, his wisdom on, on our board. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, the, I mean, the obvious things come to mind when we think of that and, and why it is important to have uh, survivors on the board, for sure. But what is it that you think that, that these board members will be able to, to bring forward or, or um, infuse into this process and into, uh, you know, the, this, this, this report as it moves forward and, and actually becomes, a, I guess, a living document. Um, what, what do you think that, that the board is going to be able to do? One of the things that's really cool about this board is the fact that it's it's reflective of the constituents that need help. So mm. we have a, a group of people that are that are all professionals in various walks of life, mm. in various various uh, capacities, mm. and they have various skill sets. Uh, so, but they're all they have one thing in common. They're all sixty scoop survivors, mm. of course, save for uh, Justice Laform, right. and. The cool thing about that is we share certain common values when it comes to, for example, making sure that we get this uh, foundation right and effective and th- that functions in perpetuity going forward. Mm. We're all motivated. Uh, we, we all have our own jobs, and our own things, but this is something that's close to heart. This is something for all of us that is, that is a labor of love, and we're prepared to do what it takes to get this right. So, and, and we have, we all have the passion and the drive to want to make sure that, uh, that, that our constituent survivors get the help where the key priorities have been identified by them. So it's for them. That's the key thing. And, mm-hmm. and the cool thing is that, that when, when the interim, interim board looked at the various candidates, uh, I believe there were over 500 candidates that, that applied. Mm-hmm. And it, that was boiled down to nine plus Justice Laform. And, we uh, they looked at the organizational values and they matched what the organizational values are with the board, so that there wasn't 
a vast difference. Like it wasn't something that that that, that, that wasn't close to their heart or didn't have a, an ability to to contribute. So, for example, the ideas of the values of the board would be like accountability and transparency, uh, honesty and integrity, kindness, compassion, and empathy. Mm. To be cultural based, to be inclusive, um, to be accessible, uh, to, to to have a safe environment, to use holistic, multi general, multi generational approaches, and to be survivor centered. These are all values that each member of the board share, and it's exciting. We've only had one meeting, and that was a pr- <laughs> that, that was the initial meeting to get things together, and we already see the fact that there's we've got a lot of work to do, sure. but we know that. We've got some commonalities there that this is going to be more than just a board of, uh, say, 10 strangers. We are already feeling the fact that we're all on the same mission. Mm. And it feels that there's a, there, there, there's a collegiality there and a passion there that I think will drive us to, uh, to really, really get some results going. Great. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm your host, David Moses, and my guest here on the show is Wayne Garnons-Williams, and he is a senior lawyer with a law firm in the Ottawa area. And we're talking to him about the... The the uh, 60s Scoop Healing Foundation, of which he is one of the 10 permanent board members. And uh, as you may have heard him just say, it's only been uh, a little while since they all got together. They've had one meeting. Uh, certainly, Wayne, you do have your work cut out for you, as you mentioned. And I guess, you know, as you were talking there, uh, the history, the fact that uh, most of you do have a history associate, associated with the 60s Scoop, um, gives you that history that you might say that corporate history uh, that that uh, people can uh, look to and and I thought it was really interesting also when you described that that these people come from many different walks of life so that gives you that broad depth as well to to understand the the many people that are going to be that you're going to be talking to and if, and and um, uh, that have been affected. Um, the other thing I, I was wondering about is how often will you guys be getting together? Do you know? Typically, with uh, with board governance, um, it, it, boards typically meet once a month. Mm-hmm. And just for for the listeners who may not deal with foundations or boards a lot, um, the board of directors, uh, especially for an organization like this, they're not salaried employees. Mm. They're not paid at all. We are volunteer members of this board. We don't receive one dime. Mm. We do this out of the out of the love of this issue and the need to want to make a change, make a positive difference. So there's that. And the whole governance structure, the way, and, and maybe a list, some of the listeners not, might, not, uh, might not understand how a board works, um, just a little bit of background about that. The way a board generally, the foundation generally works is that uh, you have an overseeing mind, as it were, sort of a mind of a, a mind and a body. The mind is the board. The board is responsible for making decisions like a strategic plan um, uh, and, or approval of an operational plan. And then the board will then uh, engage with the administration, uh, the the, the actual body of the organization that does the work, gets the programs out. And that is typically headed by an executive director who reports to the board. Mm. And the board is, uh, he's accountable to the board and reports on a monthly basis. So 
in uh, and and then the executive director once he or she gets his or her marching orders mm-hmm. then uh creates from, from the strategic plan for example an action plan based on the strategic plan that's how we're going to do it how much is going to cost where we're going to do it and uh the who what when where and why mm. and then he he or she brings that draft action plan back to the board for approval we may push back we may want want more x as opposed to y because mm. the the national survivor engagement report emphasized x not y for right. example mm-hmm. so that kind of thing um and right now with the stage we're at is we're a bunch of strangers that have been thrown together with a commonality. We're mm. all 60 scoop survivors. But not everyone on the board has the board experience mm. and has the understanding of how boards work. What, right. the limita- what are the legal limitations? What are the responsibilities? What are sure. the duties of sure. the board members? Mm-hmm. So first things first, we have to all be on the same page. <laughs> so we have to go to a, a – it, 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 just like if you become appointed to a judge as, as a judge – when you become a judge, you just don't get thrown onto the bench. You have to go to the ju- a judge's school, literally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where you learn the pr- process and procedures from the side of a judge. What right. what's expected? What's what are the duties? What are the limitations? Same thing with a board. Mm-hmm. These some people have never had the experience of being right. on a board, while others have had lots of experience. Right. So to get everyone up to the same level. It's part of board governance training. Sure. So everyone has to be, first of all, trained up uh, within – we're going to do that as soon as possible to get everyone trained up to know what their duties and obligations are. And then once we've got that, then we're going to do some internal housekeeping. We're going to look at the bylaws. This is how we operate as a board, mm-hmm. which have been given to us by our interim board. They created a set of bylaws. We have the right to change those bylaws based on the needs of to be effective. So we're going to have a good hard look and maybe change those out. And we also have to – from our board members, elect from our from our ten people who's going to be the officers of the board, uh, officers of the, of the foundation. The officers, of course, are the president, the vice president of operations, the vice president of of of, uh, of, of policy, the vice president of of of, uh, of programs, uh, th- that kind of thing. The treasurer, the secretary, that kind of thing, and then start making decisions. First thing after we've gone done our internal housekeeping, after that, is to actually have uh, a planning session where we build a strategic report based on the National Survivors Engagement Report and the information we've got from our body, our administration, which uh, we're, again, uh, we're inheriting an interim administration, an interim body that's been working with the interim board, and we'll be working with them for, 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 the, for, the, uh, for the time being because, well, they, they, they know what they're doing, and uh, we, 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 we want to work with them for now. So that's the, that's the Argyle, uh, uh, Argyle group, and they, they've been doing a bang-up job for the interim board, and we assume that they'll, be, they'll continue our, that great service for us as well. Great. Uh, good to hear. And, and you know, uh, you're quite right, of course. Uh, any board does need that governance training, um, especially, I, I'm guessing, in light of the, the kind of uh, topic and, and uh, ongoing uh, legacy that, that has been left from the 60s scoop. There's, there's a lot of uh, pain. There's a lot of families uh, wanting to reconnect. Uh, um, I believe that's uh, your own story, I believe, is, is something you went through. But, uh, you know, 
because of that uh, desire, people wanting answers, people wanting to know uh, what's going on, and uh, and uh, there's also you have to be very careful, of course, because of say family relationships, and and that there's no favoritism and all of those kind of things that that uh, could possibly crop up at some point. Mm-hmm. Very true, and so getting it right the, fr- uh, out from the gate is important for us. So getting trained up. That's our priority right now. Mm. Then doing the internal housekeeping with respect to the, the bylaws that basically govern the way the board makes decisions. That second and third is getting on to a strategic plan that prioritizes what's in the engagement report. And then finally getting the uh, Argyle, our body, our, our doers mm. to actually make us an action report that we can then say, okay, we approve it. Go get it done. Mm-hmm. Speaking of go get it done, and, and you guys are a bit away from that. I certainly understand that now that you've described the situation that you've you just had this one meeting. But you know, we, we're looking at the '60s scoop. But but adoptions are still going on to this day, and we still hear about these things now. Yeah, it's uh, it's an unfortunate situation. Um, what we're going to do is, uh, hopefully, is, is, is provide a sounding board, provide an opportunity for advocacy, education, uh, and, and uh, creative alternatives. We want to, ideally, the foundation wants to foster an, uh, um, an atmosphere of innovation and capacity with not just the board and its body, but we want to engage the talented, resourceful people that are working in the regions locally on this matter on a day-to-day basis for their constituents. So we want to be able to reach out to them and provide assistance that we can. Uh, One of those old rules that's pretty simple, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, Mm. is one of those things that we we don't want to necessarily usurp uh, an organization that's out there doing great work, mm. if we can provide some sort of support or underpinning to those organizations um, to ensure that there's, there, there's a, a, a focused attempt to, to get better services, to get better results, then that's something that this board will, will very much consider because, uh, as, as I say, there's an awful lot of great organizations that are out there across Canada mm. that, are, that continue to do really good work. So we want to we reach out to them as well. Yeah, uh, I, I certainly, and, and you know, that's one of the things I was thinking about at the top of this because there are other organizations and there are other other means out there for people uh, to be looking at. Can we go back though to your own your own experience uh, just before we end up here? Uh, because um, I, I, I did see the story about the aim uh, adopt in, in, in Indigenous or Indian yeah, and Métis. Um, which is like from the 1960s, and right. and and you were part of that. Is that? Yes, yes. Um, I, I was. Um, let's see. Um, uh, start from the beginning, I guess. The uh, little bit about my my story. The um, uh, my mom um, was. Um, I guess. Oh, I think she was 16 when she had my. Uh, my older sister, Marilyn. And unfortunately, she had a relationship with a married man. She was on reserve at 16. He was um, some guy. Mm. Um, so she, she was a single parent mom with one child um, and living at, at, at her parents, my grandparents' home. 
And she was in love with this man, even though he was married. And the heart wants what the heart wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunate for me, um, a second child was conceived, and that would be me. <laughs> so I was a product of that gentleman, plus, of course, mm-hmm. my mom. And I came on the scene. And um, at that point, it, and of course, I, I, uh, he promised, of course, to leave his wife and blah, blah, blah. You, you, it's an old story. Right. You, you know this. Right. Um, the second child comes along, me, and of course, he then claims no no knowledge never met you before <laughs> go away <laughs> and of course there's my mom with two kids single parent mom and of course social services gets wind of this mm. and they come uh come to her with police officer in tow and say um oh. you know you with one child a single parent mom on reserve you're just above the poverty line mm. with two children you fall below mm. so which one take mm. your pick Wow. So I was I was removed, mm. um, and my mother was heartbroken. Mm. I was stolen, and so I bounced around from foster home to foster home. And the AIM process started the Adopt Indian and Métis movement, and the uh, uh, the the uh, at around four and a half years of age, I was I was. Uh, uh, there's a picture of me and uh, they do this they 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 give you a a crew cut they doll you up in um, a white shirt cufflinks and a bow tie and and tuxedo pants and then they take your photograph in a studio and they make you look all cutesy like a brand new baby Mm -hmm. puppy Mm -hmm. and then they put that picture into the local papers uh, in a segment called Today's Child. Mm. And of course, that's a means of advertising for um, uh, children to be adopted. Um, uh, My birth mom... Uh, looked long and hard for me. The family looked long and hard for me. They, uh, w- when my adoptive mom saw the advertisement, she immediately went in, said, I want this child from pointed at the paper. Uh, the paperwork is done relatively quickly. There is a whole bunch of lies in it. Unfortunately, they embellished mm-hmm. the hell out of this thing. Oh, um, the, the, the mother and father really want just the, the child to have a better home. And they, you know, just, mm-hmm. just the kind of sappy mm-hmm. stuff that, sure. uh, uh, that would dupe some, some well-meaning individual into, into adopting right. so um uh, but my every every birthday on my day my mother would have a uh, a place setting an empty place setting mm. and she would tell the story to um hmm. my sister and then now my younger brothers hmm. of this occurrence hmm. and so my sister never forgot about that and it really bothered her and so when she became uh, employable. She ended up working at the band office, uh, the mm. Muslim First Nation band office. And she got, you know, a filing clerk, but she got to know the filing systems. Mm. And she still hadn't forgotten about me and she wanted to find me. So then she realized, you know, the we're all status Indians under the Indian Act and we all are issued an, uh, a, a number. Mm. Uh, <laughs> law diatribe very much like the Holocaust where Jews are issued numbers. Mm, mm. Anyways, we're all issued numbers. And so she was able to backtrace based on those numbers. Every member of the family, the Osakap family, that's my last name, Osakap, mm, mm. the Osakap family, except one. And that had a number, but no address, no name. Mm. It was just a, a file. And lo and behold, a little bit of time moves on. 
I turn 16 and I'm at this point able to access, uh, request my treaty money, mm. uh, because, uh, we're members of treaty number six, the treaty number six of 18, I believe 1870, 1878 promised an annual payment for indigenous peoples for signing the treaty. And the, the payment was, I think, a dollar mm. and it hasn't been adjusted to inflation or the cost of living. So it's right. still a dollar. Right. So. I was able to take what? $16? Wow. But anyways, I filled the paperwork out with Ottawa, uh, Indian Northern Affairs, and that went, got processed and eventually hit the band office under that status number. Mm. And that filled that note to say right. this status number has taken his treaty money up until this year. Boom. And there was a name, a new last name and an address with that. So my sister had it, and she realized, ah, that's got to be him. <laughs> so she wrote to me a cold, cold, you know, cold call, a cold letter, saying, you don't know me, but I am your sister. And here's a picture of me, and I would love to meet you. Um, let's get together. So we did that, that summer when I was 16, and it was odd and awkward because she, she was, you know, I mean, it, what do you, I mean, sure. two perfect strangers mm. come together mm. that look a lot alike, but right. don't know each other sure. and are two, the, 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 she was raised, uh, as a traditional indigenous woman. Sure. I was, I was not given that opportunity. Right. So as, as to be raised in my culture. Yeah. So it was one of those things where it was hard to really, I mean, we, the connection was there, right. but it was, it was hard Mm. to break through sure. to be able to communicate yeah. so we did that and eventually i got to over um, a lot of letters and exchanges back and forth i got to meet um i got to first first meeting with my mom my birth mom and wow this this, this i mean it's 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 a common story but i still find it amazing that my mom her first language is cree mm. Her second language is English. Mm. She was raised a traditional Plains Cree woman on reserve. Mm. She knows all the traditions, the stories. She knows uh, an awful lot of history. And so she's, she's seen what's happening. And, and, and she, she's, and she, today, this day, right now, she's one of the uh, uh, female elders of the Muslim mm. First Nation, which I'm very proud to say. Mm. So, um, but... Uh, it was hard to break through because she felt so much guilt because she felt she could have done something more. She felt she, she, she didn't fight hard enough. She felt like she was, she was, uh, uh, guilty of something. And right. I, I, it was one of those things to say, mom, you don't have to feel guilty. You did nothing wrong. Right. It was the system. Right. And what are you going to do? You've got yeah. a police officer and a, and a social service agent demanding one of your children. What are you right. going to do? Yeah. You're going to have to comply or she might lose both. So right. yeah, of course. Mm. So, but that took a lot of break, a lot, a lot of conversation, a lot right. of hugging, a lot of breaking through. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's great that I've been able to connect and I've been able to reconnect. Uh, I'm one of the fortunate ones where I got to, uh, meet my, my aunts, my aunties and my uncles and, and the, I got to do some pro bono legal work for the, uh, for the Muslim First Nation when I first graduated from law school and became a lawyer. And so I, I've been able to reconnect with my, with my First Nation in a way that, uh, I still, I still keep that connection because of of course, I'm doing intertribal trade, and I'm constantly informing my chief and council. Uh, you know, this is happening. So, you know, you guys want to get involved? Come on, join the band. Let's 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 do some economic planning. Let's right. let's build some wealth for the community. Sure. So, it's it's my way of giving back as well. Right. 
course. Wayne, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and, and thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your story and sharing about uh, the uh, 60 Scoop Healing Foundation uh, and, and the board that you're sitting on now and, and the future that it's going to be uh, bringing forth. And I really look forward to speaking with you again, uh, uh, not only on this, but uh, other topics that you have brought up as well. It, it all sounds very fascinating, and I just want to say uh, Nyawa and Chimigwech for joining us on the show. Thank you, Dave. That's a date. We're going to get together. All right. You take care. That's the voice of Wayne Garnons-Williams, and he is a senior lawyer and principal director at Garwell Law Professional Corporation in Ottawa. And also, he is one of the 10 board members, permanent board members for the 60s Scoop Healing Foundation. We've been speaking to him about that. It's been a pleasure having him on the show. It's always a pleasure having you listen to the show each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. And of course, we'll be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show a couple of people that we have had on Moment of Truth previously. We have with us Dr. Raven Sinclair, and we also have Director Roz Owen. They are here partly to talk about Trouble in the Garden, a film that we have discussed on this show previously, but also uh, to talk about the 60s scoop, which in part The Trouble in the Garden is uh, about. So, uh, Dr. Raven Sinclair... Roz Owen, welcome to the show. Um, you know, we have talked about this film before, but I nobody could really see it because it was going in, on the festival release. So yes. one of the reasons we wanted to talk, you know, talk to you again is to say that the film is on CBC Gem, um, and it's also in sixty-five countries now. It's uh, um, on on um, Amazon Prime mm-hmm. or Prime Video and Tubi and iTunes. Right. So it so it's it's possible to see this film. And I guess that was really part of it, but but also because of the healing center, yes. which is is just opening, and that's a really important piece in terms of the sixty scoop. It is, and uh, perhaps uh, Dr. Raven Sinclair, you can you can talk to us a little bit more about that, the Healing Foundation. We we in fact just had someone on uh, associated one of the uh, one of the permanent uh, uh, board members that we were able to interview. So uh, it's great that we're following up with this because it ties directly into this story. Uh, because I think that's about a year old now, but um, it's it's getting underway. Yeah. You know, I have been a, an expert advisor yes. uh, to that foundation, the development of the foundation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, it, it sort of represents uh, survivors across the country. Yes. So I do have an extensive network of, you know, colleagues, Indigenous colleagues, non-Indigenous colleagues, uh, primarily, you know, in the areas of social work and Indigenous studies. And um, But I also, I've known, I've been working, doing research with survivors for about 20 years now. And so I do know a lot of people and... And I have gotten a lot of feedback um, from both Indigenous and non-Indigenous viewers and, um, you know, sort of across the board, it's that it's it's a powerful film. You know, yeah, it really sure hits is. home. And for some survivors, um, it was difficult. Others, it was, yep. you know, it was really affirming of their own challenging stories. Yes. 
And uh, I mean, Roz, you know, in Whistler, I guess there was a woman that stood up and said, this is my story. Mm. And that's, you know, that's not the only instance where that happens. So I think, I think it's really, it's a good sort of, you know, learning tool. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Speaking as an educator. uh, Yeah. It's entertaining. And uh, it's definitely not an easy and not not sort of an easy film to, to watch. I think that uh, my own, you know, my, my adopted brother and my adopted and his wife, um, they it gave them lots of pause for thought. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because my siblings, I mean, they 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 sort of have no idea. They didn't have much of an idea of what the scoop was about either. I mean, I was just part of the family, right. and uh, so they didn't understand, you know, that my life was different from theirs. Right. I had to grapple with with very different sort of dynamics in my life than they did. And that comes across very strongly in in, in the film. We get we get yes. that side of it. We really do uh, get that understanding, um, and that's really important because of course. that whole dynamic of you know sort of being being viewed and constantly viewed in a negative light, and you know cast in these sort of negative stereotypical um, roles is is so common among survivors, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I, I don't think, you know, when I, this things I, you hear from, from non-Indigenous uh, people saying things and they, they actually don't even realize they're being racist. It's right. quite shocking. Yeah. And so in a way, I want to put some of, juxtapose that in the film in a way so you, so we could see ourselves. Like it, not that I want you know people to mm-hmm. feel absolutely dreadful, but you know it's it's something like if you see yourself sure. suddenly, then you can then there's a hope that you could you could flip your thinking a bit. That's right. Or reconsider thinking in another way. Yes. And I guess that if 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 a film can do that, then that's the piece of magic because you know that's what we hope for really when we make make stories really that. Sure. That we can affect people. Now, you talked about the collaboration that, that the two of you worked on with this. Could you guys give us more of a, an understanding of that? How, how did this all come about? Did this idea for the film revolve around the idea of telling a story that, that dealt with the 60s scoop? How did this all come about? Oh, well, that, that definitely, because I, I, one of my sisters-in-law was, is a scoop survivor, mm. and she began telling... The, the story about her life and I realized that I knew nothing about the scoop. I'd lived in Canada since I was eight and I was so shocked that that this had happened that all these children had been taken from their homes stolen from where they lived and put into into white families really to to ostensibly make them white it really happened after the residential schools so I I was I was so moved by this that I felt like I I needed to find a way to tell a story. It would be a, a dramatic story that could set this situation up in a way that could be emotionally understandable for people mm. that that didn't know already about it, and and so. It was hearing Raven Sinclair speaking on CBC, actually, about the scoop, that I just picked up the phone and found her numbers, <laughs> I guess, through the university and phoned you, cold called you, because I was so excited when I when I when I 
heard you speak and the way that you put your words together. And that's how that's how we met, actually on the phone. But then we began speaking about the script and talking about it in great detail. And Raven, I'll I'll put that over to you. Sure. So um, one of the things that really sort of enticed me was I asked her for the script and and, uh, and then I came back to her and said, um, are, would you be open to some some revisions? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I bring this the scoop, I bring the Indigenous perspective in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I saw where it needed some work and Ross was was totally open to it. And, you know, we collaborated the whole way through. And uh, well, we went, we went, we met and because Raven came to Toronto, we, we met and sat sat down and we went through every every word of the script mm-hmm. very carefully so it was and the sensibility of it too but we just I think we were just meant meant to be together I think there's magic sometimes with films yeah yeah the relationship that Roz and I have is really about you know this is about this is reconciliation because uh Roz and I are friends we're like you know sisters relatives and you know that's that's what indigenous world is all about Right, mm. you don't just sort of you know meet people and work with them, and then it's like see you later. We have a relationship that's it's very strong, and it's going to continue. Yeah, and, I, have uh, another, I have another film to talk to you about too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's ninety five seven in Ottawa, one hundred six five in Toronto. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guests here on Moment of Truth are Dr. Raven Sinclair, as well as Director Roz Owen. We're talking about the partly the trouble in the garden. Uh, Roz, I think I remember when we spoke last time, there was, there was a, I think, a monologue that was delivered. And I think I told you that I, I, I was in tears, if I'm not mistaken, does that uh, does that trigger a memory for you? No, you did, no, you did have a very emotional response. Yeah, it. I also remember too because you were. Um, it was partly, you know, it's a made up story, but it mm. has to. It's made up from a from various things, and mm. certainly Oka and Caledonia, mm. Cal, the, because it's about, um, and the Caledonia story. Yeah was what I think we were speaking about quite a bit because you had been filming some of the incidents that happened in the Caledonia standoff. Yes. And when I was thinking about the Caledonia um, standoff, when I was writing about Mm -hmm. the fact that she, um, because really the story for anybody that that doesn't know um, this of this film is about a young woman who's a land activist who's, fighting to stop development on indigenous land. Mm-hmm. And she's in a, a town that she had no idea. She wasn't, she's not from that town and she didn't realize that that's where her brother was now living. And he bails her out and puts her under house arrest at his house Yes, where she finds out that he's a real estate agent. Yeah. So that, that very much came from thinking about, about Caledonia and mm-hmm. Oka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, very relevant once again now that we have this uh, 1492 land back situation also developing uh, and underway in, in the Caledonia area. Yeah, that's right. It's come back again. Yes, it has. As it, as it would and as it should. Yep. My guess is the scene um, is the one where um, Carrie G is explaining to her sister-in-law, who she's just met, uh, Kelly Vandenberg, um, about... Because Kelly assumes, like many Canadians, that you know her mother just gave her away, mm-hmm. abandoned her, right. you know, neglected her, that sort of thing. Right. 
and uh, and care explains to her that no she wasn't abandoned she was she was taken right yeah well i, I think the another, fact another thing that i'm hoping that people take away from the film is that you know yes the the scoop affected the you know indigenous children who were taken from families and communities and culture and language and so on um, but it also affected every single family Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, after doing the film, you know, I had a chance to sort of sit back and reflect upon how did this affect my family? Because here mm-hmm. I am, a little indigenous child suddenly, you know, popped into this uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. And, uh, you know, what what was the impact on my on my parents, on my siblings, you know, their community? I think it shaped I think it changed their lives, maybe not as much as mine, but I think it definitely had a an impact. Well, yeah, I, 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 that's very true. I, I'm sure. And there's there's both families, the family that you were taken from, as well as the family that you went into, like you said, that that would have been affected. Um, mm-hmm. Raven, I'm, I'm not sure the, the name, the 60s scoop. Do we know where that came from? Who, who, came, who came up with that yeah. name? So um, a colleague of mine uh, who's retired now, Patrick Johnson, he was um, doing a report on child welfare. Uh, for the Ontario government back in 19, in the early 80s. And he put out a report in 1983. Uh, just It was about, you know, Indigenous child welfare. Mm. And in the course of his research, he interviewed a BC social worker who at the time, you know, I think she was reti- retired then. Um, she passed away, you know, within this decade. Uh, her name was Bridget Moran. And she worked in BC in the early, in the early 60s. And, and uh, you know, her sort of, her assessment was, you know, and this is a quote, she said, um, you know, we were, we were taking children out of homes and placing them into, you know, homes about which we knew nothing. And she said, the BC government is the biggest contributor to child abuse in the province. And she said, no matter how we cloaked our, our actions in child welfare jargon, we were, you know, we were putting children at, at risk. Mm. So that was her assessment of what was going on. Yeah. And uh, she said, you know, and her words, we were scooping children out of homes. Yeah. Um, that Patrick took that and then, you know, referred to it as referred to it as the 60s scoop. Yeah. Um, and it was in the 60s when sort of the real the exponential increase in the number of children being removed uh, that took place. And but it continued really into the mid 80s until Justice Kimmelman in uh, Manitoba placed a moratorium on the adoption of Indigenous children into non-Indigenous homes. And that sort of spread across the country. Right. It didn't stop Indigenous children from being, you know, take, removed and placed right. into uh, foster care and institutional care. Uh, but adoption sort of abated at that time. So that's where the term comes from. Mm. So it really refers to, you know, what I, what I call the, the Indigenous child removal system, which spanned, you know, four decades. Right. Uh, and now reason, we're into the sixth and yes, seventh decade. Yes, we are. Yeah. The reason I the reason I ask that is I'm just wondering if if we need to somehow add something on to that because you know, like you said, if people don't know what the sixty scoop is, it doesn't necessarily give you the sense that it's something as as malevolent as as what has been going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, a colleague of mine, Laura Gilchrist, she she in you know in the '90s we were having a conversation, and she said, "Well, it, you know, Raven, the '60s scoop hasn't ended. It's really now just the mm-hmm. Millennium scoop." Mm-hmm. And you know, in my own research, what I'm finding out is that our children are being removed um, through foster care, mm-hmm. through the foster care system, yep. and through um, you know legislation and one Supreme Court case that you know is sort of used as the primary justification for removing our children. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, but yeah, you know, uh, it is. It, it I've had people say, "Well, I wasn't adopted in the '60s, so I guess I don't. You no. know, I'm not mm-hmm. part of that." But right. but yeah, it's it's it, it's just our go-to, really. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is a term that doesn't sound. It's not like well, in in Australia, um, people that were taken in the same way um, are called the lost generation. Mm. Stolen generation. Right. Stolen generation. Stolen generation. Okay. Stolen generation, which is more, yeah. I mean, I don't think that you could do any, it's about the coolest thing you can do to anybody to, to, to take their children. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We see, we see that with in America now with at the border with, with Trump and, mm-hmm. you know, taking, taking children from immigrant families. It's the cruelest thing you could possibly do. I, I think it occurred to me after I, when I had my own son and, and I thought, how would I ever survive if somebody, if my child was taken from me, I just can't imagine what that would be like. Right. Ladies, you're just about out of time. Um, so I'd like to ask one quick question. That is about the, the film itself, now that it's been out and it's available in, in uh, Roz, I think you said, what, 67 countries? 65. 65. Um, so what is what, what kind of um, congratulations, first of all, to both of you? Oh, thank you. And, and uh, also, uh, what are you hearing back? What kind of responses are you getting? I get the feeling from the notes, from the notes that I get that people are – finding out about the scoop that they didn't know about mm, right which is um fantastic because that's really why we made it right uh, raven any final quick comments i think that you know um if people want to know more about the scoop and what's sort of currently happening and you know i just suggest that they they go to the 60 scoop healing foundation mm-hmm. uh, on the internet and you know we did a national engagement with um uh, survivors across the country and there's a final report there and uh, you know that whole foundation came out of the class action lawsuit victory it's really about helping people to recover uh, mm-hmm. from some of the experiences you know mm-hmm. there were some people that had great experiences and ideally that's what that's what you know should happen in child welfare right uh, but I think that it's really important that people know more about this particular period in our collective colonial history um, yeah there's some pretty yeah. powerful stories out there all and right. we can use all the support we can get. Yeah, we need, you know, we need more of these stories to be told. This yeah. is, a, you know, one version, but there are right. many stories to be told. Right. Ladies, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been such a pleasure speaking with you both. And I say once again, congratulations on the film. And uh, it's great news about these, the Healing Foundation and, uh, and that moving forward as well. We hope to see good things coming out of that uh, that can be of benefit yes. in the future as well. Oh, the mapping, the yes. mapping project too. We didn't right. speak of it, Raven. That's right. I know we're out of time. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay, there's never enough time. David, you are a great interviewer. Well, it, quickly about the, about the mapping, I did see that quickly. Is there a, a site that people can go to? I believe there is, right? Yeah, there is. So, um, I mean, anyone can just Google. Um, it's uh, 60scoop.geoforms.ca. Yeah. Yeah. And so what that is, is, uh, you know, my friend Colleen Cardinal, who, you know, she's just this amazing activist, pulled together, you know, four years of uh, uh, 60 Scoop gatherings out on the land. And she had this brainstorm to create a, a web platform, an interactive web, web platform to map the dispersion of uh, adoptees in Canada and then ar- around the world. So mm-hmm. I really invite people to go and take a look at it and for survivors to go and put in your information. 
And, uh, you know, it's an, an amazing visual tool and uh, kind of groundbreaking, I think. Okay, great. Thank you once again to both of you, Chimiguech and Yawagoa, for taking the time to join us and share the information, the updated information about Trouble in the Garden, that it is out now. People can go to Amazon Prime, they can go to uh, iTunes, they can go to uh, uh, several different online uh, places. Oh, CBC Gem, you can watch it there as well. For people that are interested in watching Trouble in the Garden, share it. Uh, get your families to watch it. Get as many people to watch it. Uh, it's a very important film for people to see for sure. And yeah. it's really been a pleasure, ladies. Thank you once again so much for taking the time to join us. Can I ask? Oh, thank you, thank David. You. Very, very much. You bet. Okay. And, and, and uh, Roz, thanks again for adding that in about the maps, even though we're out of yes, time. But... I hit me. I, yeah. <laughs> no worries. Okay. okay. Take care. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. They're the voices of director Roz Owen of Trouble in the Garden, as well as 60 Scoop Network co-founder and survivor, uh, Dr. Raven Sinclair, who actually collaborated with uh, Roz on the film Trouble in the Garden. A pleasure speaking with them both. Uh, happy to hear about the success of the film and that, that you can now go and see this film, as we mentioned in some of those places. And that is our show. Thank you for listening to us each and every day right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.